This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone and welcome to a series that we're going to be running through September about time. About time is the name of the series, but it's also a pretty good description of the series. Sam Barron is a philosopher of time at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. You might have heard him a few weeks ago on the program talking about mathematical objects, and we'll put a link to that episode on the website. You might think time is a pretty straightforward phenomenon, but over the next four weeks, Sam and his guests are hoping to persuade you otherwise. Time is one of the most fundamental aspects of our everyday lives. We plan for the future and we regret the past. We obsess about due dates and start times, and we apologise when we're late. But time is not just central to our lives, it's also crucial in our attempts to understand the world. It's just as important to the scientist who uses it to run experiments as it is to the author who manipulates it through prose and character. In fact, time seems so utterly fundamental to the world around us that it's difficult to even imagine what it would be like for there to be no time at all. In this four-part program, we're going to try to get a better understanding of time by examining it from a range of different perspectives, from physics and philosophy through to literature, psychology, and even forensic entomology, time shapes knowledge, imagination, and experience. Together, we're going to gain a deeper sense of what time is, how it works, and why it matters so much. We begin our journey at the end, specifically at the end of time. Physicists who live at the bleeding edge have begun to suspect that time is something of an inconvenience and may ultimately be an aspect of the world that we have to learn to live without. But to understand this problem of time in science, we need to dive deep into the history of time itself. From Newton to Einstein and beyond, time has a story to tell. To help us tell that story, here's Professor Craig Callender from the University of California, San Diego. Craig is a philosopher who spent most of his life studying time in physics, trying to understand what makes time tick. His most recent book, What Makes Time Special, attempts to understand the difference between time and space. Craig, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. Today, Craig and I are going to take a look at time through the ages. What we want to do is see the way in which time has been changed through physics and philosophy and the way that that's helped alter our understanding of the world. So, Craig, can you start us off a little bit by telling us something about the concept of time? Sure. Our concept of time is this big, I don't know, fat, important thing where it has a ton of different features to it. And we didn't really, you know, start to take out what bits are due to humans and what bits are due to the world, to physics. Sorting that out didn't really happen until you start to get, you know, a decent developed physics. And so if we think about Isaac Newton and the beginning of classical physics, then you can start to see that there are some features of time that were needed by physics and that were assumed to be true of the world uh, by Isaac Newton. And classical physics, of course, you know, is massively successful. It's still more or less what gets rockets to the moon. And, you know, it makes a bunch of assumptions about time. And so you might be thinking, well, time is this invisible thing. How does it end up mattering? But if you start to think about classical physics, you'll quickly see that every single experiment in physics, in classical physics, is indirectly some kind of experiment about a hypothesis about the nature of time. If something is falling from the sky, you know, it'll reach a velocity of 32 feet per second squared. Well, then 
you know, when you think about that, what does that mean? That means uh, this object will go 32 feet in that a certain amount of time. So when Newtonian physics is making predictions and then those predictions are being vindicated uh, through experiment, it's implicitly assuming various features about time. Now, in particular, Newton ends up assuming that there's a kind of universal clock and all the material bodies in the universe are listening to that clock. And so that clock is ticking away and those universal laws that Newton provides so if you think of things like F equals MA in force equals mass times acceleration, and then you would put in some kind of uh, force function, they're saying that those laws apply to everything. And there's one type of clock that is applying to all the material bodies in the universe. So what you and your partner might go to the movies and you think the film is really slow. Your partner thinks the film was really fast and that time flew by. But those are your subjective impressions of duration. But, you know, is there a fact of the matter? Well, yeah, there is a fact of the matter, according to Newtonian mechanics, because you know, the Earth will have only gone around the sun so much during that interval throughout the movie. And so that will you know, be a sort of the objective measure of time, of how much time duration has lasted there. Now, Newton also added stuff to it. Well, we don't really know exactly what he meant because he talks about time flowing as well. And now a lot of people talk about time flowing or passing. So in the one case, we think of you know, this kind of present moment is updating itself. And that sense of flow might be that Newton meant that. On the other hand, it might be that Newton just meant that there was a direction to time, that between event, you know, different events, there was a particular order. And so if we think of, you know, an order numbered by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's that order versus seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And so we don't really know which one he meant, but in either way, there were going to be challenges to that later. So there's a sense in which I think this does line up with the way that people ordinarily think about time. And that's something that you've noted already, which is that, you know, we kind of have this assumption that we all occupy the same moment of time, right? So we're all together at the same moment in God's stopwatch. There's another aspect of our everyday thinking about time, which has to do with direction. It seems like we're being pulled into the future towards our deaths, away from our births. It seems like, you know, 2023 is coming and 2020 has gone. And this directionality is another aspect of our everyday sense of time. How is that reflected in Newton's physics, if at all? I think that this is maybe why he ended up talking about flow, because in his physics, he doesn't really have anything to indicate the direction of time. But as you mentioned, you know, the direction of time is super important. All the processes we can see, all the physical processes we can see in the world are directed in a certain way, but the process goes one way and never the reverse. And so we see aging and not anti-aging, you know, despite what cosmetics commercials tell us. <laughs> Suppose we think about what Newton's ontology is. So, you know, if you think about the, a bunch of little particles, you know, so if you have this kind of billiard ball picture where there's a bunch of little billiard balls executing Newton's laws and they're bouncing around. And then if we took a film and we zoomed in on some collisions between a bunch, you know, just a few balls, 
then, you know, it's often remarked that you just couldn't tell whether the film was being run forwards or backwards. You know, you'd see a couple of billiard balls hit each other and bounce away. And then the reverse of that would be a few billiard balls hitting each other and bouncing away. And you couldn't tell which is the right way to run the film. On the other hand, if we then zoom out and start to look at big things, the directionality of time becomes really apparent. You know, so again, to take a case that people mention, you know, if you think about a, a bull walking into a, a china shop, the bull walks in, breaks a bunch of vases, and, you know, then walks out. Now, the reverse of that is a bunch of vase shards coming up from the floor and perfectly assembling into perfect vases. And so we see the one case, but we never see the other. And so the interesting thing is that Newtonian physics allows for the temporally opposite direction or even undirected uh, processes. And yet we only see, you know, these directed ones in one particular direction. And so Newton's theory doesn't really have an explanation for that. So in other words, Newton's laws would be true even if the world were to be suddenly filled with smash vases spontaneously coming back together. And since that's not the world we see, it looks like there's something that Newton didn't explain. What we need then is an explanation of the direction of time that fits into the physics that Newton gave us. This brings us to thermodynamics and to the second law of thermodynamics in particular. The second law focuses on entropy. Entropy is a measure of the amount of work that something can do. The lower the entropy, the more something is capable of doing. The second law tells us that entropy always increases over time. Basically, things get lazier the older they get. Now, Craig, entropy and the second law are supposed to help explain why we don't see vases coming back together. How does that work exactly? Yeah, so it's a very interesting story. This idea of entropy is this kind of universal process where entropy is constantly increasing in the universe. It's often mentioned in this kind of depressing fashion of, you know, that's this running down of the universe, you know, aging and our eventual demise and all of that. But what people don't think about is that if you didn't have these kind of entropy gaps, you wouldn't have life either. And so it's really a kind of creative force in the universe as well. You need these entropy gradients to have life and stuff in the first place. Anyway, Newtonian physics allows for all sorts of crazy things happening, right? So anti-aging, bulls walking backwards out of china shops with vases reassembling. Newtonian physics allows for all that stuff, but you don't see it. So now you have a, a challenge. How can you explain this thermodynamic second law consistent with Newton's second law? So Newton's second law is time reversal invariant. It's time symmetric. It doesn't care about the direction of time. The second law of thermodynamics, its central thing is caring about the direction of time. And so how do you make those two things reconcile? How do you reconcile those two? And so you had all these brilliant people who came up with thermodynamics and then tried to connect it with Newtonian mechanics. And for them, it's true that Newton allows the normal way of things and the reversed way of things to happen, but one of them is more likely than the other. And that's where the directionality comes in. If we, again, think of that sort of universal clock or God's ideal clock that's ticking, what's happening is that all the stuff in the world is moving to ever more probable configurations. And that it's way more likely to be arranged in a way such that, you know, given an initial configuration, it's way more likely that 
certain other configurations happen. And so in particular, if you think about like, say that suppose all the air was concentrated in the corner of your room, it could just stay there, but it's way more likely that it expand through its available volume and go through the room. There's so many more ways in which the gas can be distributed through the room than just being in some special state in the corner of the room. It's a super clever thing, really, because it's still consistent with the time symmetry of Newtonian mechanics, and yet it gets out this massive directionality that accommodates and explains the directionality of the second law of thermodynamics. So what you're saying is that we can explain the direction of time in a way that's compatible with Newton's physics by thinking about the connection between entropy, probability, and ways for things to be. Low entropy states are very ordered, and there are generally fewer ways for something to be in an ordered state. High entropy states, on the other hand, are very disordered, and there are usually many ways to be disordered. Just think about a child's room. There's just one way for it to be neat, but so many ways for it to be messy. A high entropy state is generally more likely to happen because there are many more ways for it to come about. And that explains why we generally see vases shattering and rarely see vase shards spontaneously coming back together. Okay, so that all sounds pretty good. We have a physics that allows us to understand time, and we have an explanation of the direction of time. But things change drastically in the 20th century. Can you explain to us what happens to time in the shift to relativistic physics? Yeah, if I had just a simple way of thinking about it, I would suggest thinking about the Einsteinian revolution as really just sort of blowing apart that ideal clock. So, you know, throughout our conversation, we've spoken about this kind of metaphor of uh, God's clock, God having a stopwatch, and all the material bodies in the universe listening to that clock and marching to it. And then I think what happened, you know, with relativity is the idea that, you know, there isn't this kind of universal clock, that each material body is its own clock or carries its own ideal clock. You know, if you have a, want to have a kind of image of what relativity does, I mean, it really does, I think, explode that universal clock into a, you know, just a zillion little clocks, each one carried by each particle in the universe. It's amazing what relativity did, really, with time. I mean, if we think about recent measurements of time dilation, you know, it's like within a, about a meter. So you could see that the clocks running and the particles in your hips are running at a different rate than the clocks of the particles in your head. And that is detectable, measurable, observable. And so you can see how these things are are not all marching to the same drum anymore. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone and the first program in a four-part series on time. Our guide is Sam Barron, and this week he's talking with Craig Callender, a philosopher at the University of California, San Diego. We've got all these individual clocks that come from the explosion of the the big clock, what I want to do is get a sense of how radical that actually is. So one way to do that is to think about the twins paradox. Can you give us a sense of how that works? Sure. So imagine you have twins and one stays on Earth and one goes off in some rocket. Now imagine the rocket shoots off and then at some point turns around and returns to Earth. You could then look at the age of the two astronauts and then see which one is older and which one is younger. 
just as measured in terms of their biological functioning and, and that. And you can make the trip as long or as short as you want and get as big an effect as you want. But the interesting thing is that the twin who leaves the earth and then comes back will come back and they'll be uh, younger than the twin who remained. This is super interesting. And so this is what I mean when I talk about the, the big master clock being exploded into a bunch of smaller clocks. And of course, this is like one of the greatest uh, things that are experimentally confirmed in all of relativity. You know, so in the 1970s, they demonstrated this effect really well with, uh, I believe it was with the Concorde airplane. Even just recently, we actually had actual twins in America. One astronaut was a twin of the other, and one was living up on the International Space Station for a while. And so that twin is younger than the other one. He was also, for about two weeks, much taller when he returned, because without the gravitational pull, I think he added an inch or two, but that eventually collapsed back to his normal height. But he will persist in being 0.000 whatever seconds younger than his twin, uh, thanks to his flying off. Now, what the heck is going on there with the twin paradox? Well, it turns out that certain paths through space-time are shorter than other paths. And what's going on with that twin who leaves the Earth is that they are taking a shorter path. And so their clock is ticking less. And so they are younger. And in fact, you can do this for any object. You know, all you have to do is just throw the, an object up in the air. If you throw an object up in the air, and then when it's going up and when it's coming down, it's in free fall. And when you're in free fall, you are having no forces impressed upon you. And those are the paths that are the shortest ones. So let's come now to recent physics. So general relativity uh, has a sort of difficulty at the moment in terms of its compatibility with another big theory, quantum mechanics. So you can just start by giving us a, a, a rough sense of what's going on there and then we can think about what the implications for time might be from, from this conflict. Sure. So we've got general relativity, our best theory of the big. So when we're talking about cosmology, astrophysics, and, and that, we have tons of evidence for general relativity. But then we've got quantum mechanics, that weird theory that was discovered by Heisenberg and Schrodinger in 1925. And this is the best theory we have of the small, uh, you know, particles, fields, and quantum mechanics is it's unrivaled in its predictive accuracy. I mean, the amount of precision is, is just amazing. And yet we're in this really funny predicament because we know that there should be some theory that reconciles general relativity with quantum mechanics. And we know that they should matter to each other, but we also are in a kind of sticky situation because we're, we're so far from being able to you know, measure, in a, in a, do an experiment where we could see what's going on. So for instance, you know, in principle, there could be really tiny black holes. And if they're really very tiny, then quantum effects should take over. Alternatively, 
think of electrons going around the nucleus. You know, there should be some kind of gravitational component that matters to that because electrons have mass. And so our theory of the big should affect our theory of the small and our theory of the small should affect our theory of the big. There should be a theory of it all. And so if you want a complete unified theory, we should have a theory of quantum gravity. And what we have is this kind of situation where we have all these different research programs and listeners will have heard of the, some of these like super strength theory, but also loop quantum gravity, canonical quantum gravity, causal set theory, causal triangulation theory, uh, all sorts of different theories. Uh, and each of these research programs has some sort of interesting kernel of an idea, a kind of clue or hint that they then work through and develop into a theory that they then you know, want to propose as the beginnings of a theory of quantum gravity. Some of them are at different stages, I would say, but no one would say, it's fair to say, no, no one who works on any of these would say that the theory is complete, any of these theories are complete in any way. And so we're in this state where we have this proliferation of different theories, some of which are very wild, you know, like superstring theory, they're very different, and yet we don't know which one is the right one. So we've got these uh, research programs, and these research programs are attempting to uh, take general relativity and quantum mechanics, and in a certain sense, replace both theories with a theory of quantum gravity, which unifies the uh, empirical predictions of both and gives you a story that I guess you can scale up or scale down arbitrarily. So you can use the same theory at quantum scales and at cosmological scales. What happens to time in some of these theories? Why is there this, as some physicists call it, a kind of problem of time in quantum gravity? Yeah, it's a very exciting time to, to be thinking about this stuff because, you know, on the one hand, I painted this kind of dire situation where we, you know, are very far from doing an experiment and have this proliferation of theories. On the other hand, you know, you, you know these two great theories, relativity and quantum mechanics conflict. And because of that, you have this, I would describe it as a kind of like openness of spirit or that to putting everything on the table and saying nothing should be uh, forbidden from being discussed because you, something deep is at, at the heart of this conflict between the two. And in particular, time seems to pop up as uh, it's, a been, it's been waving a flag when it comes to all of this. And the principal reason for this is that Quantum mechanics requires, has a time in it. And in fact, apart from some stuff in quantum field theory, mostly it just uses regular good old Newtonian classical space time. But now you've got general relativity and now all the clocks have exploded. And what do you do? To give a kind of flavor of this, of the problem, I mean, just think of how important time is to the rest of physics. So quantum mechanics gives you a bunch of probabilities. Now think about how probability is connected to time. You know, if you, you know, flip a coin, you'd say that the probability of heads is 50% and the probability of tails is 50%. Those two chances, 50% and 50%, they sum to one. All the outcomes of any process need to sum to one at a time. And so to make sense of probabilistic physics, it requires that you have a time, you know, so it makes sense of all these probabilities 
but that's just one example. Now, if you then say, well, Craig, you just said that the master clock gets exploded. And now I then try to do quantum mechanics with this master clock exploded. You know, I run into trouble. And so then this has led to what you've called the, the problem of time. And I should say, it's not exactly an issue with all the different research programs, but in the majority of them, what you have happen is something very dramatic, which is that people say time disappears. And so you have, you know, in terms of this story of the rise and fall of time, here you have the ultimate demotion of time being proposed by many groups where there is no time at the fundamental level, they're saying. And so if we, again, think in terms of this kind of story, the narrative of our, through our discussion, you know, time began with all of these different jobs to do in the Newtonian world. And then successively, these jobs have been being removed from time until eventually, now, if this is right in quantum gravity, then the, you know, the last job has been removed from time. And now time is unemployed and it has nothing to do. And, is, and so it's been made redundant from our physical theories. And so when people talk about the loss of time, in these sorts of theories. So they're, they're putting forward theories that in some sense don't have time in them. But do they think that time is gone from the universe completely? Because as you said, time is still in physics uh, in, in a lot of places. And it's not like when we move on from quantum mechanics and general relativity that we're going to throw the entire theory in the bin, right? We're not going to say, well, look, all of that was just completely on the wrong track and we've got to start from scratch. We're going to we're going to develop and build on those theories and those theories you can't really get rid of time from at least quantum mechanics completely. So is time really gone for these theories? You said something like it's gone at the fundamental level. Does that mean that it's gone completely or is it still there in some sense? Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, we can distinguish between, you know, being gone at the fundamental level and being gone altogether. You know, we're familiar with this sort of notion, you know, when we say, you know, fundamental physics doesn't include tables, and yet clearly tables exist. And so the hope is that that would be the case with time as well uh, in all of these programs. You know, so if, if all of our evidence for all of our theories comes from experiments done in time, and are measuring, you know, the time uh, of something, you know, some particle decayed or things like that. What would it mean then to have this theory where all the evidence was based on measurements in time to say that there's no time? It seems like it would be what's sometimes called empirically incoherent. So for that reason, you know, what they want to do is explain how time arises or emerges. Just like, you know, we don't think of the micro world as having colors. Uh, colors emerge from the micro world. So we don't say like protons are red or something like that. But redness emerges from a bunch of uh, particles. And so the idea is that maybe time could do that as well. Craig Callender, Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the author of What Makes Time Special, and we'll put publication details for that on the website. 
He was talking there with Sam Barron, and as I mentioned, throughout September, Sam's going to be steering the Philosopher's Zone through a four-part series on time. Next week in part two, we're going to be taking a literary turn and looking at the role of time in fiction. So I hope you can join us then. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week. See you next time.